Well, good morning. Thank you. It's great to be here and good to be with uh, friends. I've known James for many years and uh, Pastor Ted Lang, who was my pastor while in Adelaide, before my family uh, went to Indonesia in 1998. Uh, We served in Indonesia for 21 years. Uh, We were involved in uh, two ministries. One was establishing Christian schools throughout Indonesia, which you may know is the largest Muslim nation in the world. fourth largest population in the world, third largest democracy in the world, the biggest invisible thing in the world is Indonesia. So when you talk about Australia's neighbours, please don't forget to talk about Indonesia. Uh, The COVID crisis in Indonesia is massive and uh, uh, I've been struck coming back to Australia how little interest is taken by Australians in their neighbour. And you remember Jesus said we're to love our neighbours. Our neighbour is Indonesia, so please pray for that wonderful country. Uh, We were involved in uh, Christian education. My role was to train in biblical thinking and theology, helping teachers to think uh, about life and learning in a a complete way, founded in a biblical uh, theology that was true to the scriptures. I was also the preaching pastor for 18 years at the Jakarta International Christian Fellowship, a church of 850 people, Uh, We planted a church of 150 refugees, uh, people who came to Indonesia, to Jakarta, fleeing from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Somalia, many of whom became Christians in Indonesia. Can you believe it? Had to come to the largest Muslim country in the world to become Christians. Uh, But now they're stuck because Australia has shut its borders and they have nowhere to go and no one to care for them except for the church in Jakarta. It's a testimony to God's goodness and the way the church has surrounded uh, those who have no home, no work, no status and blessed them and and encouraged and helped them. So it's wonderful to be here this morning. I'd love to tell you more about uh, Jakarta and Indonesia but it's time to hear God's word, isn't it? Which we heard from Mark's Gospel, Chapter 8. Quite a long passage or passages but we'll do our best to uh, get you home in good time, but not without having heard God's word. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your word, which is true and living and active. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, our ears, our minds in a complete way to comprehend you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I understand it, I wasn't here, but was it? did I hear that Adelaide had a, a power crisis some two or three years ago? Is that right? The power went out and the lights were out for what? Was it two or three days, I'm, I'm thinking, and you all struggled through? And uh, I'm just wondering, I believe there's a new big battery that's helping uh, solve the, the power problem. Um, have, have you had that problem since then? Fantastic. Good news. Uh, In Jakarta, the lights go out all the time. (laughs) Uh, And when the lights go out, that means the TV stations are down, the internet's down, the phone system's down. In fact, in August 2019, the whole of West Java was down. 50 million people. Can you imagine 50 million people without power and without lights? And can you imagine driving on Jakarta's roads without traffic lights and stoplights? It's hard enough in the daylight when everything's working. And here we were trying to navigate our way through 
the darkness. So travelling on roads without lights at night, that's difficult. 15 million motorcycles in Jakarta. Everyone trying to risk life and limb to get to where they want to go. It's very dangerous, but far more dangerous than that scenario is religion without light, without the light of Jesus. So the context for our message this morning, which we didn't read today, but the back story is that Jesus has just fed a crowd of uh, approximately 4,000 people, famished people, hungry people. Jesus has compassion on those people and through a miraculous meal of bread and fish provides for them. That's the second feeding that we have recorded in the scriptures. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000 was a prior feeding uh, and Mark tells us that that is true. They're not the same feeding, just repeated and, and summarised. It's two distinct events, two miracles that Jesus performs and having done that second miracle, he sends the, the satisfied crowd away and he gets into a boat with his disciples and they sail across the Sea of Galilee to a town on the western side of Galilee uh, called Dalmanutha. And of course, when he gets there, we have the menacing force of the Pharisees ever present And of course they're coming to Jesus and we're told in Mark's Gospel that they test Jesus with questions. One particular question, Jesus, would you you show us a sign? Would you give us a sign? Now of course they haven't seen the feeding of the 4,000. They weren't there. But they've seen other miracles. They know of other miracles that Jesus has performed. So, So to ask for a sign is in fact a denial of the light that they already have received. It's important that we understand that the, the Pharisees' problem was a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. John tells us that in the Gospel, doesn't he? He says, light has come into the world. But men love darkness and won't come into the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So I'd like to suggest to you that the people in Australia, this no religion society, it's not so much an intellectual problem that they have. It's a moral problem. It's a problem of sin and of shame which is suppressed which holds down and holds out the light of the gospel. And so this is the situation that faces Jesus having, having fed the 4,000, now, now questioned intently by the Pharisees as a form of a test. And, and you must understand that the, the bigger picture of this scene is the reality that in The wilderness in the Old Testament, Israel was tested by God, we're told, to see what was in their hearts. And in the wilderness they sinned and they rejected Moses and the signs that they had seen. Numbers tells us ten signs were given to them which they 
rejected. And so here we have Jesus, the the miracle worker who provides the meal for the people, just as God provided manna for the people in the wilderness. And now he is tested. But behind this testing is a satanically ominous atmosphere. Because the only other testing of Jesus that has happened in Mark's Gospel up to this point is that by Satan of Jesus in the wilderness. So when we hear that the Pharisees are testing Jesus, we we see there's a much bigger story happening here and powerful influences at work in the world of the biblical world of the first century in seeking to suppress the light so that people might live in the darkness. And that's why Jesus is very concerned that the disciples see and understand and comprehend who Jesus is, his identity, and why he has come. At this point in time, their understanding is incomplete. There's confusion in the community of the disciples. And even as they sailed across the Lake of Galilee to Delmond, they forgot about the bread and the miracle that Jesus had performed, which was clearly a sign of his deity and his power to perform great deeds as God in the flesh. And Jesus said to those disciples, watch out, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And so this is why in our text we come to Bethsaida in the Roman province of Syria and there we have a double healing miracle of a blind man, a two-stage miracle the intent of which is to help the disciples overcome their two-stage unbelief, that of both uh, moral confusion and physical lacking of clarity. And so Jesus comes into the village. Uh, The man has been blind for some time. We know that he has previously had sight because after the first stage of the miracle, he sees people and says that they appear to be like trees. So he's obviously seen trees before. He knows what a tree is. So it seems that having been through the first stage of the healing process, in this partial healing, he's nearsighted still. And objects in the distance, like people walking around and moving around, appear to him somewhat blurry. And then Jesus touches the man again and we're told that his eyes are opened, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So the message of this passage in Mark's Gospel The whole context of this message is the opening of eyes and hearts and minds so that people will see clearly who Jesus is and why he has come.
And we know this also by Jesus' rapid-fire questioning of the disciples. He said things like this. He said, don't you have eyes to see? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember? Haven't you got ears to hear? And so when we think about the word and the theme of seeing in the Gospel, particularly in Mark's Gospel, what we're to understand is that seeing is more than eyesight. Seeing will involve divine insight. It's a multi-sensory understanding of who Jesus is. Yes, it involves remembering things, but it will involve divine revelation. So to see Jesus and to understand Jesus involves eyesight and insight. To see Jesus and understand Jesus involves the mind, it involves the memory, it involves remembering, but it involves revelation from God. And so we move from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi in the north, the far north, the northwest of Israel. This was a city that was established in honour of Caesar. It was a city that was predominantly Gentile and it was a multicultural city given over to the worship of Roman power and Greek promiscuity. The god Pan was worshipped here. Pan, the goat god of nature. Caesar was worshipped here. An altar was built there in his honour. And so it's in that multicultural Gentile city of many gods that Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So twice, after the healing of the blind man, don't go into the village... And after the recognition by Peter, by divine revelation revelation of Jesus, don't tell anyone, we see that Jesus is concerned that people will know him in a certain way at a certain time in a certain place. If you want to know who Jesus really is, if you want to understand why he really came, Jesus would have us wait until he takes his disciples and in us reading the story takes us to the cross. You see, you can't be right about Jesus and wrong about God. You can't deny the revelation of God's word, the testimony about Jesus, and still be right about Jesus. So, for example, in Caesarea Philippi, people may have thought Jesus was just one God amongst many, for example. Like another God, another Roman God, another Greek God, a Jewish God. 
Jesus doesn't leave us the option of picking and choosing, like on a supermarket shelf, which spiritual deity we'll take home and worship. People say all sorts of things about Jesus. The disciples said as much. Some say, Jesus, you're like John the Baptist, perhaps because of his preaching. Some say, Jesus, you're like Elijah, well, perhaps because of his praying. Some say, Jesus, you're like one of the prophets because of his powerful words speaking to his generation. No, you cannot follow Jesus while still accepting the existence that there are other ways to God. You cannot follow Jesus and at the same time accept the existence of other ways to God. But that is of course the society we live in and in which many people around the world live in. And so the challenge to the church is to see Jesus clearly and to listen to his words which we're told in this text he spoke plainly so that our eyes will be opened, our ears will be hearing, our mind will be remembering, but most importantly, by divine revelation, as was Peter's experience in this moment, we will understand Christ and him crucified. The man Christ Jesus, the only mediator, between God and man and worship him and follow him. And so we come to the crucial cross and having said to Peter, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God. You have, you have in mind the things of man. Peter, you don't really understand who I am and why I have come. You've said I'm the Messiah, but, but the Messiah die and rise? You haven't yet seen what that will mean. So Peter, behind your action in trying to restrain me and stop me from going to Jerusalem or even saying these things about myself, it's the same ominous atmosphere as was present in the Pharisees' testing of Jesus. Satan at work, behind the scenes, in the background, seeking to prevent the disciples moving from partial sight to complete devotion of their Lord. And that's why Jesus says, Well, Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, that he would be killed and after that rise again after three days. He spoke about these things plainly. The blind man saw clearly and Jesus speaks plainly. Now we can understand why the disciples would have heard these words of Jesus as incredible and incredulous. Messiah die, 
Messiah rise? What would it mean? What could it mean? But we know what it means. Uh, We've been given God's word. Uh, We have the privilege of 2,000 years of Christian history. We have a heritage of men and women of God who have told this story countless times. We've believed the story. That's why we're here this morning on Palm Sunday. And we say with those people, Hosanna. But of course, in the church generally... In the Western world, but not exclusively the Western world, we might say that a cataract has formed across the eye of the church in its understanding of Jesus and the cross. So for many people, the cross has now been sentimentalised. Would you agree? And it's sentimentalised by people who are obsessed with personal comfort and freedom. Who have tired of language of self-sacrifice. We live in a society obsessed with the desire for personal comfort. We came from Indonesia. The church is growing exponentially. We come back to Australia. The churches are emptying. They're closing. Because the church has taken on the spirit of the age. Obsessed with personal comfort and personal freedoms. The church in Indonesia persecuted. Churches burnt down. Bible colleges shut. A man of God in Jakarta who I admire greatly had his whole Bible college shut down. 800 students told to leave just on a weekend, on a whim, by a complaint by a local citizen. So what did they do? They went up into the mountains in the forests and they lived in tents and they continued their Bible college. That man leading that Bible college is now the pastor of a church in the largest rubbish dump in Southeast Asia. 7,000 people live in a rubbish dump. Muslim people. The poorest of the poor. And Yusuf has gone there with his wife and teenage children. They live there. They're the only people, the Muslim people community say, to have loved them. And the church is growing. It's not difficult to understand why the church in Australia is declining. It's not difficult, guys. But there's a cataract, isn't there? It seems like we have blurred vision. We've misunderstood Jesus' mission. And the cross and its place in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church. Some people wear the cross as a fashion accessory, as if that's enough. Listen to the words of Peter Taylor Forsyth. He says, The cross of Christ is the one atonement of the world. 
the one final treatment of sin. The one hinge of human history. It's that big. And then he says, it is to the cross that the church must come back, take its bearings, be given its course. Christ is to us exactly what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth, he put into what he did there. And all that man's moral soul needs, doing for it eternally, was done eternally there. And so Jesus, of course, offers the challenging call to those who would see him clearly and listen to him plainly and say to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross, follow me. Well, what does Jesus mean? Denying, no longer live for yourself. If you're living for yourself, you're not living for Jesus. I led a Bible tour to Greece a few years ago, the land of Aristotle, who famously said, know yourself. But you know what the t-shirts say in Greece today on the streets of Athens? Be your... No, not be yourself. Be your selfie. Oh, so I am, I am the photo on my phone. Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Live to please the Lord. Just as Christ Jesus did not please himself. Romans 15.3 We must die to self. To take up a cross is to take up an instrument of execution. It's an instrument of shame, of ridicule. Of rejection. It's a one way journey. Die to self so that we would live to God and for God totally, fully, completely. Follow me, Jesus says, wherever he goes. Revelation 14 4. Wherever the Lamb goes, wherever he leads, Whatever he wants, whatever he says, follow me. We don't trade him. We don't exchange him for anyone else or anything else. We lose our life to find our life. It made me think this morning of those beautiful words of the hymn, Lost in wonder, love and praise. What a great losing. What a great loss. Lose yourself. Lost in wonder, love, the love of God and praise of him. We can't be wrong about Jesus and right about God. Did you know that? You can't be wrong about Jesus and right about God. 
And you can't be right with God and wrong about the cross. Just this week I had a disturbing experience. I was invited in a Christian school by a Christian teacher of the Bible to sit in a seminar that he was leading with a large group of middle school students and I was a guest to, to listen and to learn. Uh, the students were, had pre-prepared questions about life and learning, good questions, great questions, which he was attempting to answer. And as we came towards the end of the 40-45 minute session, uh, a question was asked about pornography, to which he replied, Watching pornography is unhelpful, but it is not sinful. Your reaction was exactly mine. Although I couldn't say anything at the time, I was a guest. Now, uh, what would you say? What would you think? Because you now know, as I knew then, that this is a moral problem, not an intellectual problem, actually. So I caught up with him later. And I said, well, so tell me about pornography. And his reply to me was, what is sin anyway? But after a fruitful discussion, God was at work. And this man, who is a genuinely nice man, went to his superior and asked him a question, having told him what he had said and done. Have I done something wrong? And his superior was able to have a very long conversation with him, open the Bible and talk about the whole story of God and, and of course, the specifics of human sin. But what got my attention was his argument for saying pornography is not sinful, it's just unhelpful, is this. He said, I don't believe that today we should use the idea of shame in teaching children. And it got me thinking about the headlines in Australia's newspapers. Can I just read a couple to you? Absolutely shameful Parliament sex acts shake Australia's government. Prime Minister Scott Morrison lashing the behaviour as shameful conduct. Society gets it. But the teacher in the Christian school did not. The cross deals with our shame, reveals our shame, and deals with our shame. No one who trusts in me, Jesus said, will ever be put to shame. And what that means is, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God promises never to raise the issue of sin and hold us against us to accuse us. Isn't that wonderful? No more shame. And when Paul says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what he really means is, I know that the gospel will never prove to be untrue and it will never be unworthy of my allegiance and my mission. And that's why when we come to the end of this text, we have to deal with the issue of shame 
through the cross. Because Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Jesus takes us to that future, last day when he comes the Lord of life as both saviour and judge. How wonderful as we sang in that second song today that we'll have no fear to meet him and to face him because he's dealt with our shame on the cross and taken it away. But for many, it will be a fearful day. How important is it for us to see Jesus clearly and understand him plainly and follow him wholeheartedly before that day? And I love that James asked me to include chapter 9 verse 1 in the reading because in chapter 9 verse 1 we have the future brought into the present where Jesus says, some who are standing here will not taste death, excuse me, before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. And we understand this to mean... Three of the disciples, Peter, James and John, are going to be standing on a mountain with Jesus and they will see him transfigured in glory. So can you see what Mark has done? He's begun with spiritual blindness, darkness, and he brings us to the scene of Jesus' perfect, total, pure goodness as God himself. It's amazing, isn't it? Don't you love the scriptures? I'm I'm probably taking someone's uh, thunder here, but I'll just read these texts. We're told that in the transfiguration that uh, his clothes became dazzling white, like a flash of lightning, face shone like the sun, clothes as white as the light. Full glory, shining deity, seen for a moment by a few. But here's the point. The Jesus who we will see on the day of his return in his glory is the Jesus we must see today. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this text. It's true and trustworthy. We thank you, Lord Jesus. You are the Lord of life and light. You dispel darkness. You defeat darkness. You dismiss it. You deal with it on the cross and through your glorious resurrection. Uh, Lord, we just pray that as we've heard your word today, You'd open our eyes. Lord, we don't want to be blurred or at worst blank in our minds, lacking knowledge of who you are and why you came. But more than just knowledge, Lord, we want to move us into obedience. 
taking up our cross, denying ourselves, following you, not self-obsessed, selfish, Lord, but totally given over to pleasing you and loving you and serving you. And Lord, we just pray that through our worship of you and our witness, the light of the glory of the gospel of God will be seen through this church, in this community, this Easter. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be singing a hymn uh, now together. Beautiful hymn, which was truly the experience of the disciples, was it not? in coming to see and understand and know Jesus and our experience as well. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Let's stand and sing.